Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. And on the third evening of that galley's day, one of the uncomfortable merchants spoke to him, smirking sinfully and hinting of what he had heard in the taverns of Carter's Quest. He appeared to have knowledge too secret for public telling. And though the sound of his voice was unbearably hateful, Carter felt that the lore of so far a traveler must not be overlooked. He bade him, therefore, be his own guest in locked chambers above, and drew out the last of the Zug's moonwine to loosen his tongue. The strange merchant drank heavily, but smirked unchanged by the draught. Then he drew forth a curious bottle with wine of his own, and Carter saw that the bottle was a single hollowed ruby, grotesquely carved in patterns too fabulous to be comprehended. He offered his wine to his host, and though Carter took only the least sip, he felt the dizziness of space and the fever of unimagined jungles. All the while the guest had been smiling more and more broadly, and as Carter slipped into blankness, the last thing he saw was that dark, odious face, convulsed with evil laughter and something quite unspeakable, where one of the two frontal puffs of that orange turban had become disarranged with the shakings of that epileptic mirth. Carter next had consciousness amidst horrible odors beneath a tent-like awning on the deck of a ship, with the marvelous coasts of the southern sea flying by in unnatural swiftness. He was not chained the three of the dark, sardonic merchants stood grinning nearby. Then the sight of those humps in their turbans made him almost as faint as did the stench that filtered up through the sinister hatches. He saw slip past him, the glorious lands and cities of which a fellow dreamer of earth, a lighthouse keeper in ancient Kingsport, had often discoursed in the old days and recognized the templed terraces of Tsar, abode of forgotten dreams, the spires of infamous Thalarian, that demon city of a thousand wonders where the idolan Lothi reigns, the charnel gardens of Zura, land of pleasures unattained, and the twin headlands of crystal meeting above in a resplendent arch which guard the harbor of Sona Nile, blessed land of fancy. Past all these gorgeous lands, the malodorous ship flew unwholesomely, urged by the abnormal strokes of those unseen rowers below. And before the day was done, Carter saw that the steersman could have no other goal than the basalt pillars of the west, beyond which simple folk say splendid Cathara lies but which wise dreamers well know are the gates of a monstrous cataract wherein the oceans of earth's dreamland drop wholly to abysmal nothingness and shoot through the empty spaces toward other worlds and other stars 
in the awful voids outside the ordered universe where the demon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in chaos amid pounding and piping and the hellish dancing of the other gods, blind, voiceless, tenebrous, and mindless, with their soul and messenger, Nailarthotep. Meanwhile, the three sardonic merchants would give no word of their intent, though Carter well knew that they must be leagued with those who wished to hold him from his quest. It is understood in the land of dream that the other gods have many agents moving among men, and all those agents, whether wholly human or slightly less than human, are eager to work the will of those blind and mindless things in return for the favor of their hideous soul and messenger, the crawling chaos, Nailarthotep. So Carter inferred that the merchants of the humped turbans, hearing of his daring search for the Great Ones in their castle on Kadath, had decided to take him away and deliver him to Nyarlathotep for whatever nameless bounty might be offered for such a prize. What might be the land of those merchants, in our known universe, or in the eldritch spaces outside, Carter could not guess, nor could he imagine at what hellish trysting place they could meet the crawling chaos to give him up and claim their reward. He knew, however, that no beings as nearly human as these would dare approach the ultimate knighted throne of the demon Azathoth in the formless central void. At the set of sun, the merchants licked their excessively wide lips and glared hungrily, and one of them went below and returned from some hidden and offensive cabin with a pot of basket and plates. As they squatted close together beneath the awning and ate, the smoking meat was passed around. But when they gave Carter a portion, he found something very terrible in the size and shape of it so that he turned even paler than before and cast that portion into the sea when no eye was on him. And again, he thought of those unseen rowers beneath and of the nourishment from which their far too mechanical strength was derived. It was dark when the galley passed betwixt the basalt pillars of the west and the sound of the ultimate cataract swelled portentous from ahead. And the spray of that cataract rose to obscure the stars, and the deck grew damp, and the vessel reeled in the surging current of the brink. Then, with a strange whistle and plunge, a leap was taken, and Carter felt the terrors of nightmare as earth fell away, and the great boat shot silent and comet-like into planetary space. Never before had he known what shapeless black things lurk and caper and flounder all through the ether, leering and grinning at such voyagers as my pass, and sometimes feeling about with their slimy paws when some moving object excites their curiosity. These are the nameless larvae of 
the other gods, and like them are blind and without mind, and possessed of singular hungers and thirsts. But that offensive galley did not aim as far as Carter had feared, for he soon saw that the helmsman was steering a course directly for the moon. The moon was a crescent, shining larger and larger as they approached it, and showing its singular craters and peaks uncomfortably. The ship made for the edge, and it soon became clear that its destination was that secret and mysterious side, which is always turned away from the earth, and which no fully human person, save perhaps for the dreamer Schneereth Kell, has ever beheld. The close aspect of the moon as the galley drew near proved very disturbing to Carter, and he did not like the size and shape of the ruins, which crumbled here and there. The dead temples on the mountains were so placed that they could have glorified no wholesome or suitable gods. And, in the symmetries of the broken columns, there seemed to lurk some dark and inner meaning which did not invite solution. What the structure and proportions of some olden worshippers could have been, Carter steadily refused to conjecture. When the ship rounded the edge and sailed over those lands unseen by man, there appeared in the strange landscape certain signs of life, and Carter saw many low, broad, round cottages and fields of grotesque, whitish fungi. He noticed that these cottages had no windows, and thought that their shape suggested the huts of Esquimal. Then he glimpsed the oily waves of a sluggish sea, and knew that the voyage was once more to be over water, or at least through some liquid. The galley struck the surface with a peculiar sound, and the odd elastic way the waves received it was very perplexing to Carter. They now slid along at great speed, once passing and hailing another galley of kindred form, but generally seeing nothing but that curious sea and a sky that was black and star-strewn, even though the sun shone scorchingly in it. There presently rose ahead the jagged hills of a leprous-looking coast, and Carter saw the thick, unpleasant gray towers of a city, the way they leaned and bent, the manner in which they were clustered, and the fact that they had no windows at all, was very disturbing to the prisoner, and he bitterly mourned the folly which had made him sip the curious wine of that merchant with a humped turban. As the coast drew nearer, and the hideous stench of that city grew stronger, he saw upon the jagged hills many forests, some of whose trees he recognized as akin to the solitary moon tree in the enchanted wood of earth, from whose sap the small brown zoogs ferment their peculiar wine. Carter could now distinguish moving figures in the noisome wharves ahead. And the better he saw them, the worse he began to fear 
and detest them, for they are not men at all, or even approximately men, but great, grayish, white, slippery things, which could expand and contract at will, and whose principal shape, though it often changed, was that of a sort of toad without any eyes, but with a curiously vibrating mass of short, pink tentacles at the end of its blunt, vague snout. These objects were waddling busily around the wharves, moving bales and crates and boxes with their preternatural strength, and now and then hopping on or off some anchored galley with long oars in their forepaws. And now and then one would appear, driving a herd of clumping slaves, which indeed were approximate human beings with wide mouths that looked like those merchants who traded in Dilatlin. Only these herds, being without turbans, or shoes, or clothing, did not seem so very human after all. Some of these slaves, the fatter ones, whom a sort of overseer would pinch experimentally, were unloaded from ships and nailed in crates, which workers pushed into low warehouses or loaded on great lumbering vans. Once a van was hitched up and driven off, and the fabulous thing which drew it was such that Carter gasped, even after having seen the other monstrosities of that hateful place. Now and then, a small herd of slaves dressed and turbaned, like the merchants, would be driven aboard a galley, followed by a great crew of the slippery grade towed things as officers, navigators, and rowers. And Carter saw that the almost human creatures were reserved for the more ignominious kinds of servitude, which required no strength, such as steering and cooking, fetching and carrying, and bargaining with the men on Earth or other planets where they traded. These creatures must have been convenient on Earth, for they were truly not unlike men when dressed and carefully shod and turbaned, and could haggle in the shops of men without embarrassment or curious explanations. But most of them, unless lean and ill-favored, were unclothed and packed in crates and drawn off in lumbering lorries by fabulous things. Occasionally, other beings were unloaded and crated, some very like these semi-humans, some not so similar, and some not similar at all. And he wondered if any of the poor, stout, black men of Parg were left to be unloaded and treated, and shipped inland to those obnoxious strays. When the galley landed at a greasy-looking quay of spongy rock, a nightmare horde of toad things wiggled out of the hatches, and two of them seized Carter and dragged him ashore. The smell and aspect of that city are beyond telling, and Carter held only scattered images of the tiled streets and black doorways and endless precipices of gray vertical walls without windows. At length, he was dragged within a low doorway and made to climb infinite steps in pitch blackness. It was, apparently, all one to the toad things, whether it were light or dark. The odor of the place was intolerable, and when Carter was locked into a chamber and left alone, 
He scarcely had strength to crawl around and ascertain its form and dimensions. It was circular, about twenty feet across. From then on, time ceased to exist. At intervals, food was pushed in, but Carter would not touch it. What his fate would be, he did not know. But he felt that he was held by the coming of that frightful soul and messenger of infinity's other gods, the crawling chaos Yarlothotep. Finally, after an unguessed span of hours or days, a great stone door swung wide open again, and Carter was shoved down the stairs, and out, and out, into the red-litten streets of that terrible city. It was night on the moon, and all through the town were stationed slaves bearing torches. In a detestable square, a sort of procession was formed, ten of the toad things, and twenty-four almost human torch-bearers, eleven on either side, and one each before and behind. Carter was placed in the middle of the line, five toad things ahead and five behind, and one almost human torch-bearer on each side of him. Certain of the toad things produced disgustingly carven flutes of ivory and made loathsome sounds. Some of the toad things produced disgustingly carven flutes of ivory and made loathsome sounds. To that hellish piping, a column advanced out of the tiled streets and into nighted plains of obscene fungi, soon commencing to climb one of the lower and more gradual hills that lay behind the city. But on some frightful slope, or blasphemous plateau, the crawling chaos waited. Carter could not doubt. And he wished that the suspense might soon be over. The whining of those impious flutes was shocking, and he would have given worlds for some even half-normal sound. But these toad things had no voices, and the slaves did not speak. Then, through that star-speckled darkness, there did come a normal sound. It rolled from the higher hills, and from all the jagged peaks around it was caught up and echoed in a swelling pandemonic chorus. It was the midnight yell of the cat, and Carter knew at last that the old village folk were right when they made low guesses about the cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and to which the elders among cats repair by stealth nocturnally, springing from high housetops. Verily, it is to the moon's dark side that they go to leap and gamble on the hills and converse with ancient shadows. And here amidst the column of beaded things, Carter heard their homely, friendly cry, and thought of the steep roofs with warm hearths and little lighted windows of home. Now, much of the speech of cats was known to Randolph Carter, and in this far terrible place he uttered the cry that was suitable, but that he need not have done, for even as his lips opened he heard the chorus wax and draw nearer, and saw swift shadows against the stars as small, graceful shapes leapt from hill to hill. 
and gathering legions. The call of the clan had been given, and before the foul procession had time even to be frightened, a cloud of smothering fur and a phalanx of murderous claws were tidily and tempestuously upon it. The flutes stopped, and there were shrieks in the night. Dying almost humans screamed, and cats spit and yelled and roared. But the toad things never made a sound as their stinking green ichor oozed fatally upon that porous earth with the obscene fungi. It was a stupendous sight while the torches lasted, and Carter had never before seen so many cats, black, gray, and white, yellow, tiger, mixed, common, Persian, Manx, Tibetan, Angora, and Egyptian. All were there in the fury of battle, and there hovered over them some trace of that profound and inviolate sanctity which made their goddess great in the temple of Bubastis. They would leap seven strong at the throat of an almost human, or the pink tentacled snout of a toad thing, and drag it down savagely to the fungus plain, where myriads of their fellows would surge over it and into it with the frenzied claws of teeth of a divine battle fury. Carter had seized a torch from a stricken slave, but was soon overborne by the surging waves of his loyal defenders. Then he lay in the utter blackness, hearing the clangor of war and the shouts of the victors, and feeling the soft paws of his friends as they rushed to and fro over him in the fray. At last, awe and exhaustion closed his eyes, and when he opened them again, it was upon a strange scene, the great shining disk of the earth, thirteen times greater than that of the moon as we see it, had risen with floods of weird light over the lunar landscape, and across all those leagues of wild plateau and ragged crest, there squatted one endless sea of cats in orderly array. Circle on circle they reached, and two or three leaders out of the rank were licking his face and purring to him consolingly. Of the dead slaves and toad things, there were not many signs. But Carter thought he saw one bone a little way off in the open space between him and the beginning of the solid circles of the warriors. Carter now spoke with the leaders in the soft language of cats, and learned that his ancient friendship with the species was well known, and often spoken of, in places where the cats congregate. He had not been unmarked in Ulthar when he passed through, and the sleek old cats had remembered how he petted them, after they had attended to the hungry zoogs, which looked evilly at a small black kitten. And they recalled, too, how he had welcomed the very little kitten who came to see him at the inn, and how he had given it a saucer of rich cream in the morning before he left. The grandfather of that little kitten was the leader of the army now assembled, where he had seen the evil procession from a far hill, and recognized the prisoner as a sworn friend of his kind on earth and in the land of dreams. A yell now came from a farther peak, 
and the older leader paused abruptly in his conversation. It was one of the army's outposts, stationed on the highest of the mountains to watch the one foe which Earth's cats fear, the very large and peculiar cats from Saturn, who for some reason have not been oblivious to the charm of our moon's dark side. They are leagued by treaty with the evil toad things, and are notoriously hostile to our earth cats. At this juncture, a meeting would have been somewhat of a grave matter. After a brief consultation of generals, the cats rose and assumed a closer formation, crowding protectingly around Carter, and preparing to take the great leap through black space to the housetops of our earth and its dreamland. The old field marshal advised Carter to let himself be borne along smoothly and passively in the massed ranks of the furry leapers, and told him how to spring when the rest sprang, and land gracefully when the rest landed. He also offered to deposit him in any spot he desired, and Carter decided on the city of Dilathlene, whence the black galley had set out for he wished to sail thence thence for Oriob, in the carven crest, Negronic. Also, to warn the people of the city to have no more traffic with the black galleys, if indeed that traffic could be tactfully and judiciously broken off. Then, upon a signal, the cats all leaped gracefully with their friend packed securely in their midst. In a black cave, on a far, unhallowed summit of the moon mountains, still vainly waited the crawling chaos near Lothotep. The leap of the cats through space was very swift, and being surrounded by his companions, Carter did not see this time the great black shapelessness that lurk and caper and flounder in the abyss. Before he realized what had happened, he was back in his familiar room at the inn at Dilath Lane, and the stealthy, friendly cats were pouring out the window in streams. The old leader from Ulthar was the last to leave. And as Carter shook his paw, he said he would be able to get home, a cockcrow. When dawn came, Carter went downstairs and learned that a week had elapsed since his capture and leaving. There was still nearly a fortnight to wait for the ship bound toward Oriob, and during that time he said what he could against the black galleys and their infamous ways. Most of the town folk believed him, yet so fond were the jewelers of great rubies that none would wholly promise to cease trafficking with the wide-mouthed merchants. If aught of evil ever befalls Dilathlane through such traffic, it would not be his fault. In about a week, the desiderate ship put in by the black mole and tall lighthouse, and Carter was glad to see that she was a bark of wholesome men, with painted sides and yellow lateen sails, and a gray captain in silken robes. Her cargo was the fragrant resin of Oriob's inner groves, and the delicate pottery baked by the artists of Baharna, and the strange little figures carved Negronic's ancient lava. For this, they were paid in the wool of Ulthar and the iridescent textiles of Hothag and the ivory, carved 
by the black men across the river in Parg. Carter made arrangements with the captain to go to Baharna, and was told that the voyage would take ten days. And during his week of waiting, he talked much with that captain of Negronic, and was told that very few people had seen the carven face thereon, but that most travelers are content to learn its legends from old people and the lava gatherers and image makers in Baharna, and afterward say in their far homes that they have indeed beheld it. The captain was not even sure that any person now living had beheld that carven face, for the wrong side of Negronic is a very difficult and barren and sinister place. And there are rumors of caves near the peak wherein dwell the night gaunts. But the captain did not wish to say just what a night gaunt might be like, since such cattle are known to haunt most persistently the dreams of those who think too often of them. Finally, Carter asked the captain about unknown Kadath in the cold waste, in the marvelous sunset city. But of these, a good man could truly tell nothing. Then this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.